Hello, welcome to Whole Life Rising, where we take you inside the Whole Life Movement. Each episode, we will welcome a guest, discuss issues, and share stories from the front lines of Whole Life efforts to safeguard human life and dignity at all stages of life. I'm Robert Christian, the editor of the Whole Life publication Millennial, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kristen Day, the executive director of Democrats for Life of America. Kristen, we're back. Yes, it's a pleasure to be back here with you, Robert. Great. Let's start with our first segment in the news. There have been some terrific Whole Life articles since our last show. Daniel K. Williams, the author of the invaluable book, Defenders of the Unborn, wrote an article titled Abortion and the Class Divide. He notes that wealthy women are far more likely to be pro-choice than poor women, yet the abortion rate is higher among poor and working class women. Many of these women, of course, feel compelled to do so because of their financial circumstances. This offers important lessons for pro-lifers and pro-choice people, I think. For pro-choice people, are you really securing choice and equality for these women if they have abortions against their conscience because they feel like it's their only option? For pro-lifers, are we doing enough to ensure that there is material assistance for these women? They need more than just lectures on morality or even human rights. And this is a, a point that Williams makes in his article. What do you take away from the gap in support for legal abortion between wealthy and poor women? Well, first of all, I think this discussion is so important, and it does make me very proud of the work that we were doing at Democrats for Life with our pro-life for the whole life mission. And one of the things we've been talking about is the need to provide support for pregnant women for real choice. Because as you said, a lot of women feel uh, particularly poor and uh, women feel like abortion and believe abortion is their only choice. And it's, we need to, you know, we at Democrats for Life have been advocating for programs that will provide her with the opportunity and remove barriers to allow her to bring the pregnancy to term and support the child. Uh, you know, and we look at the abortion lobby is really pushing the narrative that we need public funding of abortion so poor women can have access yet they're overrepresented in abortion numbers clearly uh, you, you cannot argue that and uh, you know the pro-life movement uh, they are um, you know pushing these six-week bans and 15-week bans but we we really need to talk as a pro-life movement about partnering those bans and prohibitions and regulations with uh, equal a number of support and alternatives to abortion to make sure that if there is a six-week ban or, an, or a heartbeat bill or a 15-week ban, the necessary resources are there to support the women. And Texas did, uh, when they passed their heartbeat bill, did put uh, extra money into their alternatives to abortion program, which is critical, but we need to really work on building this infrastructure of support for pregnant women so they do have the opportunity to, to bring their mm -hmm. children to term. That brings us to our next article by one of my favorite authors. That would be you, Kristen. <laughs> In America Magazine, you write, with the passage of its new heartbeat bill, Texas has a tremendous opportunity to show that our society can provide women with support, compassion, and alternatives to abortion. We must elevate the way we treat pregnant women and preborn life. What inspired you to write this article? Uh, what did you have in mind with it? Just to, to bring attention to this area that's really overlooked by both sides of the abortion debate. Like, what do you do to support these women? So you can prohibit abortion um, or you can pay for abortion, but what are you doing to give provide women with choice, choice to carry the pregnancy to term? And, uh, you know, we've been working on some legislation called the Every Mother Matters Act, which did pass in Arkansas with Democrat support. Um, we had a few Democrats support it, which was encouraging, and pro-choice Democrats. You know, there's a 1-800 number. It directs the women to um, doctors. They can talk to doctors and, or nurses immediately to f get more medical information about their pregnancy. But then it tells, it tells the women all about the state, federal, and local programs that are available to support her. Um, it directs them to a pregnancy support services uh, that follows the woman for two years. And I think most of these pregnancy support services will not kick her out after two years. You know, I think these the pregnancy assistance centers are, are really um, amazing centers that care about the women. Uh, so I just think we need to bring more attention to this area that's overlooked and try to 
really provide that what women need when pl placed with an unplanned uh, pregnancy or crisis pregnancy, and you know change change the direction we're going on, uh, the extremes, and look in the middle uh, where where the need is. Absolutely. The last article is by Tish Harrison Warren on the limits of my body, my choice, a popular phrase for both anti-vaxxers and supporters of legal abortion. Warren challenges this libertarian, hyper-individualistic definition of freedom as purely negative freedom, being free to do whatever you feel like doing without restraints. Instead, she connects freedom to the ability to live well, justly, and righteously, and she connects it to the common good. Do you think it's important for the pro-life movement to talk about things like the common good and our responsibilities to one another? Oh, absolutely. You know, when this first uh, vaccines mandates came out and people started clamoring, my body, my choice, it only took away some of the uh, talking points from the abortion rights uh, side. So it was so interesting to see like these two different political extremes really using the same language for my body, my choice. I do have to say that when you're talking about abortion, there is another person intimately involved. And, you know, with the vaccines, you are protecting yourself and others as well. But uh, you know, it, it was an interesting thing to see this, uh, and you still see these at the rallies. You see these signs, "My body, my choice," and this individualistic um, streak among both the right and the left. So uh, it's been a rather interesting thing to to watch this. But again, we um, you know we have to bring it back to uh, you know protecting people. And at Democrats for Life, we have a very consistent position, and we want to protect life in the womb. We want to protect those from the death penalty. We want to protect those, um, you know, from getting, from dying from COVID. So we've, again, very proud of the work we do in really pr promoting this consistent ethic, uh, protecting all life from womb to tomb. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, of course, we stand up for the right to life as a fundamental human right, but there are responsibilities that come with ensuring human rights. You don't really have rights unless people fulfill the duties that are connected to them. So this sense of responsibility for other people, looking out for other people, to me, it's vital to even talk about rights. No, absolutely. Absolutely, Robert. All right. Now let's move on to our question of the month. Our question this month is, what should the pro-life movement do to prepare for the Supreme Court's ruling in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, the big case that could potentially overturn Roe v. Wade? Yeah, this is it goes back to building this infrastructure for women, um, pregnant women, to make sure that they have the resources available them to them. You know, if if Roe is overturned by the Supreme Court in June, you know, this fight is just beginning because it will go back to the states. And we already see some of this fight starting now with uh, states like New Jersey was trying to pass a really extreme uh, abortion bill up to nine months, taking away human rights from the babies in the womb, saying that they have no rights. Yeah, unfortunately, we were able to scale back that, that law. It was signed into law, but you, know, you see New York passed an extreme abortion law. California is trying to become the abortion center um, to attract people to come and get abortions. So we have a huge, huge battle ahead and really countering this abortion extremism in these states of really trying to uh, promote abortion as the only solution to an unplanned pregnancy. So I think it's our job is to really promote this an infrastructure of support for pregnant women and making sure they have the resources, again, for real choice. When we talk about the right to choose, you have to stand, you know, especially as the Democratic Party, that, that is what we, you know, we say, we want a woman's right to choose. We have to stand by that and make sure that women actually have a choice, and it's, the choice isn't just abortion. And we see some of these states promoting abortion as the best and only choice. When uh, we were working on the New Jersey bill, one of the provisions talked about, well, if you're a woman in school or you have a job, uh, you know, a child will interfere with your ability to do these things well. And so your best option is abortion, which I don't think is a good message for women, uh, especially from a feminist perspective. You know, we can be mothers and we can 
have jobs, we can finish school. And we just need to make sure that that message is out there and that level of support, the support to stay in school and having paid leave if, you're, uh, if you have a job and uh, you know, affordable childcare and building up that infrastructure rather than saying uh, abort your child because you can't keep your job or finish your education. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think the pro-life movement should view this as a crossroads. Um, if Roe is overturned, as you indicated, it's headed back to the states. And that means there's a need for a new strategy, not one centered on the Supreme Court anymore. And that opens up new possibilities, new challenges. And the prospect of common ground, who knows if it can happen, but I would like to see more people in the pro-life movement saying, okay, how can we support pregnant women? If it really is difficult for women to have a successful career in education, what can we do to help them keep their baby if they wanna keep their baby? Right. If people are pro-choice, they should want women to be able to make that choice. So reaching out for common ground there. Some of these fights, as you said, in New Jersey and other places are going to continue on legislation regarding abortion. And then I think a big challenge for the pro-life movement is to figure out a new strategy on persuasion because we simply have to win more people over. If this issue is returning to the political branches, we have to persuade more people that every human being, whether born or unborn, has dignity and worth and human rights that deserve to be protected, and that the full equality and flourishing of women can occur without the need for legal abortion. And that's a big challenge. We've got a long way to go, and we really need to think about what can we say? What arguments can we build? What, what tone is right to persuade people? I think, you know, the challenge should go to the pro-choice movement as well and those who support abortion rights. It's not just the pro-life side. You know, when Texas passed the heartbeat bill, you know, instead of um, trying to evolve with the, the laws of the state, Planned Parenthood simply shut down their clinics. Mm-hmm. So instead, they should have you know, evolved and moved into pregnancy support. What, what is wrong with doing pregnancy support? Uh, they predominantly do not provide that kind of support for women. If you look at their, their annual reports, the amount of support they provide to pregnant women is minuscule compared to the number of abortions. So I think, you know, so we need the pro-choice side to evolve too and look at ways to common ground and come to the, come to the center. I mean, they can fight for the legality of abortion all they want, but they, they should also fight for the rights of women to carry their pregnancy to term. You know, especially Planned Parenthood is supposed to be Planned Parenthood. You know, parenthood is the key word here. So I, I would, I would uh, encourage the other side is all, also to come to the common, find common ground with us and, uh, you know, provide that support for women. Absolutely. And I remember about a decade ago, I think we met with some pro-choice people and we're trying to find common ground. And there was not a real willingness there to meet us mm-hmm. and to work together on these. But I do hope the pro-choice movement doesn't get better at persuasion. I hope they get worse, actually. <laughs> they do have a losing argument. I, I think they are losing the support when they when they go to this uh, aborting a viable child after 20 weeks. They tend to lose people after that. Yeah. So I, we, when I was up in New Jersey and I was testifying on the bill up there, uh, one of the members said, you know, this bill makes me very uncomfortable. You know, and this was a Democrat. And when you talk about ending the life of a viable child, it just, there's a really uh, discomfort with that, which there should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And shout your abortion and all these other campaigns they have where abortion is seen as a positive good. Not You don't want it to be rare or anything like that. That's disconnected from the American people. It sure is. And that's what's it's disappointing to see this effort uh, for California to become, you know, an abortion destination. Uh, it's just, that's not the answer to, you know, shipping women halfway across the country to get an abortion. You know, let's support them where they live and um, make sure that they have everything available to them to, to, to have their families. Our guest this episode is Marcus Mesher, one of the top millennial theologians in the country, an associate professor of Christian ethics at Xavier University. He's the author of The Ethics of Encounter, Christian Neighbor Love as a Practice of Solidarity. A writer for millennials since its inception, he has also written for numerous academic journals, 
and popular periodicals, including America Magazine and National Catholic Reporter. Thanks for joining us today, Mark. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So in your book, The Ethics of Encounter, um, which I believe came out right around the beginning of the pandemic, you wrote about the divided states of America. What did you mean in talking about the divided states of America? Well, you know, Pope Francis has been calling us to build this culture of encounter, uh, which I think is really an important goal for being church in the world today and trying to be witnesses of Jesus' teaching and healing ministry in our social context. And at the same time, I think it's really important to see what are the obstacles that we're facing, what what is impeding this culture of encounter. And when I was um, working on my dissertation on the principle of solidarity, I was investigating what what is making it so hard for us to to help give any kind of traction to this principle of solidarity. And, you know, people talk pretty openly about the hyper-individualism in America and in the West more broadly. And, you know, I, I think it's about a lot more than individualism. And so I really wanted to explore what is at the heart of what's causing so much social fragility and fracture right now in this present context, which isn't to say that it's entirely new. You know, I, I think we've always been divided and into various ethnicities or ideological camps. But there is something about this present moment that I think leaves people feeling, or at least tempted to feel despair, because it, it feels so hard to talk to people and engage constructively across difference. Some of that I think is exacerbated by social media and just the way that you know complex ideas that require a lot of nuance are, are being grossly simplified and people are taking things out of context and dunking and dragging on people. And it's just, you know, hot takes everywhere you look and no real robust engagement. But I think too, the the work that I was doing, trying to be intentionally interdisciplinary and looking at political science, philosophy, sociology, and psychology, it was important to look at it through a number of lenses. And, And yes, there are the social features of individualism, but there are also economic ones, you know, so, so reading, for example, the tumbleweed society and thinking about how economic insecurity is a real threat to solidarity because people are so worried about being able to provide for their family and the changing landscape of economic development over the last few decades, especially in a globalized economy where it feels like so many jobs are being outsourced or sent overseas, or, you know, people are worried that, you know, migrants are coming here to take our jobs, uh, that that's contributing to xenophobia and and people turning inward. Uh, And then looking at racial theory and and to understand how, you know, racism, I think in our country is most often understood in terms of personal beliefs or ignorance. But the, the more that I learned about how our, our country's history and culture have been impacted by racism, socially, structurally, institutionally, and geographically. It was really helpful for me to better understand the ways in which economic exclusion and exploitation have been written into the way cities were designed and developed, uh, the white flight that contributed to s- suburbs being developed, the way that you know when freeways were were being built in the 1960s, they were sent right through communities of color and houses were ripped down. And, you know, so the social fabric was being torn apart and we were contributing to, you know, sending people off into these homogenous lifestyle enclaves. And so I think when you, when you bring those things together, how divided we are when it comes to political ideology, when you think about the economic insecurity, when you look at how racism is geographic. It's not just uh, personal bias or ignorance. And, and you start putting those pieces together, it starts to help make sense of why it feels like there is so much social fragility and fracture in this moment. And and the, the way that I tried to build that chapter in particular was to try to help us move past those simple binaries of red state or blue state. I think that's so unhelpful because, you know, as I point out in the book, 
about a quarter of Americans identify as Republican, about a third of Americans identify as left-leaning or Democratic, but that leaves uh, about 40% of the country who identify as independent or who feel politically homeless. And so when we only think of things in terms of these binaries of right versus left or liberal or, or conservative, it really just is inaccurate and I think it kind of imposes more division than, than is actually present. So there was a study that came out right as I was writing the book called The Hidden Tribes of America that showed that there's actually more consensus to a lot of the political and economic issues of our day. And, and so that was, I think, really interesting for me to kind of sit with that and, and think more about how underneath all the social fragility and fracture or the distrust and division that you know is very popular in, in discourse about the state of our country right now, that there, there is room for common ground and it, it takes uh, a good degree of vulnerability and courage so that we can engage people across differences and discover the values that we share in common. Mm -hmm. You talk about that impacting sort of fragility and fracture in the country. What do you think the consequences are of deep partisanship, polarization, these divisions, even if they are stronger among elites or the people that we see in the media or on social media? What are the consequences? Well, I think it really does contribute to a sense of, of despair or, or fatalism. You know, I, I try to be as politically active as it's possible to be with, you know, having three small children and, you know, being a full-time professor, you know, balancing all of the balls in the air. And, and it it feels like politically that the the levers of power are stuck because of just the the way that the country just makes decisions along partisan lines. You know, we're seeing this right now with a, a Senate that's you know split fifty fifty, and it just feels like you know we're at an impasse. And unless you you can really talk about things with a partisan hat on, we won't make any progress on any of the issues. So like, I think a great example of this is immigration reform. You know, since the 80s, Americans have been profoundly dissatisfied with the, the lack of access to pathways to citizenship for undocumented immigrants or work visas, you know, things of this nature. And, and there's been zero progress on immigration reform for the last four decades. And there's really no pressure on Congress to do anything about it. I mean, think about all the politicians who've talked about standing up for dreamers and, and still, you know, in 2022, we've had actually absolutely no progress uh, on that. So I, I think, you know, institutionally, it feels like we're at an impasse and there's just not a lot of room for hope that we can get out of this gridlock or this really, I, I think, just uh, full-throated partisanship. And then you, you scale that down from the institutional levels through the interpersonal and the individual levels. And I, I think it does contribute to a good amount of people just throwing up their hands and say, why bother? There's really not much room for, for anything to change. Uh, and, and so that was a, an important point of that opening chapter with the divided states of America is, you know, because Pope Francis is, is calling us over and over to be agents of this culture of encounter or, you know, in Evangelii Gaudium, he talks about the need to initiate and sustain this revolution of tenderness, it's a profoundly hopeful-filled vision. And we see that in Laudato Si and Fratelli Tutti. And so we've got to find ways that we don't just fall prey to cynicism or the kind of skepticism that, that I guess, kills the conversation before it even gets started. That's sort of political despair, right? Or the idea that there's despair in terms of changing things and advancing the common good. I think you also write a little bit about despair as just straight up flat out despair and anxiety and sort of loneliness and some other trends we've seen in the country. And now people seem more inclined to talk about these with the pandemic. But some of these trends came well before the pandemic started. I think you looked a little bit about why some of these the sense of isolation or anxiety or alienation has been deepening. How did it develop like that? And how do you think the pandemic will affect things? Yeah, so I mean, there was some really interesting writing after President Trump was elected in 2016 about his ability to tap into anger, social anger. And uh, Martha Nussbaum and a couple other commentators described or, or tried to do some analysis of that anger. And, and typically, you know, we understand anger as uh, the fruit of, of helplessness or powerlessness, or in response to an injustice. And so I, I think that even before the pandemic, there were wide swaths of the country who felt pretty helpless uh, about 
the lack of, of social mobility or, or upward mobility in terms of, um, you know, their socioeconomic standing. Uh, the economy was benefiting a select few people, but really going back to the Great Recession and, and you know, the financial collapse in 2007, 2008, where people lost their, you know, their stock portfolios or they weren't able to retire on schedule. I think that that kind of economic uh, insecurity really did contribute to a sense of powerlessness or fear about the future. And again, in a, in a globalized economy, given that there's so much interdependence with, you know, a, a free market with, you know, what's going on in other parts of the world and where we get our goods, that people felt like there was a lot less control at their fingertips than, you know, it was for previous generations when, you know, you could go to the local mall or a store like Sears and get just about everything you needed. And and now with the gig economy and everything getting outsourced and people losing their jobs and having so much financial insecurity and, you know, look at the, the minimum wage hasn't been raised since 2009. Um, you know, there are a lot of people who are doing worse now than before um, the great collapse or the Great Recession. And so I think that that all contributes to, you know, people really having a, a sense of dread for the future. And we see this, right, like with fewer people getting married, uh, fewer people having children, that there are a lot of reasons. And then you add on top of this, the impending doom of the climate crises that we're facing, where 85% of the global population has already been affected by climate change. It gives people a lot of reason to really worry uh, and I think, you know, I, I'm not trying to be a doomsayer, um, but I, I think that adding on what people are reading in the news or seeing on social media and the doom scrolling that people do, it can just compound all of those reasons to feel anxious uh, or afraid and, and to have a sense of distrust that our elected officials really don't have our interests at heart. I really don't know that I can trust my neighbors or my employers to have my back. Uh, and so I think, you know, um, it's pretty easy for people to develop kind of this I do me, you do you framework or this live and let live philosophy that just as easily becomes live and let suffer or live and let die. And and that's just, I think, only exacerbates the social isolation and loneliness that really has come to the form, forefront through the pandemic. Uh, but as you point out, you know, th those roots were there long before COVID arrived on our shores. One of the most interesting books that I read in, in while I was researching my book is the book a book called Loneliness by Gerald Arbuckle, who's in Australia, and he was tracing just the rising rates of loneliness, the, the number of people who report being really dissatisfied with their relationships, you know, the, the people who feel like they don't really count, matter, or belong, even if they're married, even if they're professionally completing their, their goals and, and successful economically. And so I, I think there are ways in which we can tie that into a society that is hyper-individualistic and thinks that we have to solve all of our problems by ourselves. Uh, the amount of time we're spending with our screens and, and the, the impact imprint of uh, social media that is kind of like compare and despair on steroids. I mean, now there's uh, quite a lot of data that, that show that the more time we spend on social media, the higher the rates of uh, sadness, anxiety, depression, and social isolation, which is really counterintuitive. You know, we use our phones to connect with other people, but they end up making us feel worse about ourselves and more alone than before we picked up our phones. And so I think all of this is contributing to, I, I think, not only a lot of social isolation and anxiety and insecurity, but also uh, because it's becoming so prevalent, it's giving us more chances to address some of the root causes uh, and especially the way that this is impacting young people. I was having a conversation with the medical director of Children's Hospital here in town. Cincinnati Children's is, you know, a top three pediatric facility. So, you know, they have they feel a lot of pressure to be able to really address community and, and national and even global pediatric needs. And the doctor was telling me that, you know, before the pandemic, they were seeing maybe, you know, like a, a hundred cases a year of mental health crisis among young people. And right before the pandemic hit, you know, so like in December of 2019, it had already quadrupled. And then once the pandemic hit and kids were sent home and they weren't connecting with their friends, but they also weren't connecting with teachers or other trusted adults, people who could check on them or could, you know, affirm them, um, support them, you know, the social workers, all of the people that are, you know, part of a school supports system. You know, it was doubling even after it had quadrupled, you know, so um, it was and it was, you know, he was saying 
if you started to chart it, it looked like these these trends were growing exponentially. And, and Cincinnati Children's just simply didn't have enough beds for all of the mental health cases that were coming through their doors. So they were going to build a brand new facility only to treat uh, the, the mental health issues with young people. And, and so I think, you know, a lot of people have been struggling with mental health issues in the pandemic because of the physical isolation and how much harder it has been to connect. But I think it, it's really being exacerbated by technology, which is just such a, I think, a poor approximation of the kinds of relationships that we need. You know, that's what I value so much about Catholic social teaching is that it, on the one hand, it, it affirms the inherent and universal and equal dignity of the human person. And on the other hand, it reminds us that to be human is to be social, that, that we were, we are hardwired for relationships and that there's no human flourishing in individualistic terms, that, that we were made for covenant relationships. And so, I, I, you know, as I see it, I think the, the mental illness uh, spike that we're seeing is a barometer of uh, a socially sick society with terrible quality relationships that are making it really hard for people to, to feel like they belong, that they count, that they matter. Uh, to, to, to find the support and the accountability that they need to learn, grow, develop, and, and make the important connections that help us actually build communities marked by authenticity and freedom and right relationships that contribute to not only individual well-being, but the common good. Yeah, and I think a lot of what you're talking about is relevant for the whole life cause. I think one important area is deaths of despair from suicide, from the opioid epidemic, right? Uh, overdose deaths and alcohol-related deaths, which might be around 100,000 this year. All of these have gone up in past years and not just when the pandemic started. And the pandemic, of course, could make these even worse. Um, to me, that's something that people who value human life and dignity should be very conscious of and, and trying to think about what, what can we do to, to fix this, to, to turn those numbers around. Pope Francis talks about the throwaway culture, a culture of indifference. Do you find those to be helpful frameworks for understanding what's happening within the context of the United States? I do. I think there's a high degree of accuracy in in labeling uh, a lot of what's plaguing American society as, as part of that globalization of indifference. You know, in a homily in 2013, when Pope Francis went to the island of Lampedusa to lament the ways that Europeans were turning their backs on refugees from Africa and the Middle East. Um, he, he said, you know, he invoked the story of the, the Samaritan and, and the way in which so many Europeans replicate the attitude of the priest or the Levite in that story who say, that's none of my business when they see someone else in need. And I think that's something we certainly are guilty of in the United States, where a lot of people maybe rightly feel overwhelmed. Um, and just say, I, you know, I can't possibly care about other people's problems. Or they've kind of fallen into, maybe again, because of our phones, just so much distraction that we don't even know how to tune into, how to empathize with, how to understand what other people are carrying. Last semester, I was teaching All About Love by Bell Hooks. And my favorite chapter in that book is a, is a chapter on love as a healing force. And Bell Hooks makes this claim that healing is rarely, if ever, done in isolation. She argues that healing is an act of communion. And I, I lifted this out of the text for my students and asked them, you know, to assess the strengths and weaknesses of her claim or, you know, to respond to it. And every student but one in a class of 28 rejected the idea that healing is an act of communion. So in other words, 27 of the 28 students thought that healing is an individual task, that, that it's up to me, that you have to rise and grind or, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps or, you know, just get over it or, or work on this maybe in the privacy of a relationship with a counselor or a therapist, which was just absolutely shocking to me that outside of one individual who really did see friends and family as indispensable for the work of healing, everyone else thought I can't burden other people with what I'm carrying, and they are not obligated to help me in any way, even if they love me, to help me with what I'm carrying. And so that's one of the things that I worry about, again, looking really at young people, 
is the way in which so many young people are, are aware of what their parents are stressed stressfully caring and the ways in which you know their, their parents might be you know just trying to keep their heads above water or you know really daunted by everything that the pandemic has shown them and so they, they've kind of bottled up these feelings and kept them to themselves and they don't know how to ask for help or let people in that vulnerability is not something that we model well for our young people in a way that you know really leads to mutual respect and a deep compassion and a moral responsibility for taking care of one another in, in a social way. Uh, and, and so I, I think, you know, just given the work that Pope Francis is doing with this globalization of indifference and the throwaway culture, it, it is a prophetic critique and it raises the, you know, these problems as moral problems and also as spiritual problems. And and I think it's living in a in an increasingly secularized context where fewer and fewer p- people identify with institutionalized religion who are participating in weekly religious rituals as part of a faith community that we're, we're failing to make the connections between social problems or political problems or economic problems or uh, ecological problems as spiritual problems and as moral problems. So I, I think that's part of what the Pope is calling us to reclaim, you know, to, to see the problems that are impacting individuals and communities as, as spiritual problems that we have to be accountable to. I always think of that insight from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs that in the Hebrew scriptures, the command to love your neighbor as yourself is repeated twice, but the command to love the stranger, the widow, and the orphan is repeated no less than 36 times. And, you know, scholars point out that the stranger, the widow, and the orphan, those were those were individuals that, you know, most people think they didn't, they didn't owe anything to. They were protectionless, they were powerless, they were expendable. And, and I think there are a lot of people today who feel expendable. They, they feel invisible or insignificant. And so when Pope Francis is talking about the throwaway culture, I think he has, you know, specific groups in mind, you know, maybe people with physical or cognitive disabilities or refugees and migrants or indigenous persons. And I think that's true. And, and certainly, you know, in, in our country, we've got a lot of work to do to honor what especially communities of color are carrying disproportionately in, in worse situations than a, than a lot of more privileged and white communities in this country. But I think, it, you know, there are people who feel discarded everywhere you look, you know, in, in almost every home or neighborhood or parish. That was one of the things that I, I was most uh, saddened by it, uh, when I did some research in response to the synods on marriage and family in 2014 and 2015, and I was combing through responses to the 73 question survey that was issued by the USCCB, and, and in reading the responses to that survey, you know when people talked about how they really didn't feel like their local parish cared about them or was in touch with their needs, that that was kind of true across the board. But there were groups of people like the divorced and remarried and widows in particular, who felt like the church almost never saw them, almost never reached out to them. And single people were another category of people who just felt like they were among those people that just, because they don't fall into kind of the the typical way that we imagine the American family, that they just were socially and and even religiously insignificant. So I, I think what Pope Francis is is talking about is important, but I, I think we have to kind of pull back and see it at the macro view or, you know, just a wider lens than thinking about it only with a select few kinds of groups, which isn't to say, you know, uh, that, that the pressing needs of the most vulnerable or uh, marginalized shouldn't make serious claims on us. So I'm a serious advocate for the preferential option for the poor and vulnerable. And I also think that it's important to point out that there are poor and vulnerable people everywhere we look. If our sense of community is fraying or in pretty bad shape, along with a sense of solidarity, responsibility to other people, what can we do to start rebuilding that concretely? Yeah, I mean, I think if the pandemic has been anything, it's been an indictment of a total absence of solidarity in American culture. I think the unwillingness of people to make sacrifices for other people, whether they have pre-existing health conditions or you know, compromised immune systems, or even now, you know, I I have a daughter who's three, who isn't in a position to be vaccinated yet. And I see so many people who just want to be done with the pandemic. 
And because they're vaccinated and boosted, they're ready to be done, but they don't think about the consequences of other people who, who can't be vaccinated, you know, who aren't eligible yet, um, or who still are dealing with comor comorbidities or other health factors that keep them at really high risks. And so, you know, that, that philosophy of I do me, you do you, or you stay in your lane, I'll stay in mine, it sounds really nice. It sounds like radical, you know, tolerance or non-judgmentalism. But it, it's a lie, right? Because it, it ignores the, the fact of reality, which is other people are impacted by the decisions we make and, other, and we are impacted by the decisions other people make. It, it ignores the, the interdependence and the interbeing of what it means to be human. And so to answer your question directly, I, I think we, we have to make room for our encounter uh, that we we have to keep trying to engage people across differences of of opinion, and it's really hard work because so many of us do live in these homogenous lifestyle enclaves where we're surrounded with by people who look like us, who think like us. As you may recall from my book, I point out that at least according to the research I had in my hands, you know, at the time, three quarters of white Americans didn't have a single black friend, and two thirds of African Americans didn't have a single white friend. You know, there's so much that we don't understand about what it's like to be someone other than me. And it's because we don't have relationships, like really robust relationships, not acquaintances or coworkers or neighbors, but people that we're willing to talk about political issues with or economic issues with and really listen. And that's why I so appreciate this vision for a culture of encounter that Pope Francis has put forward and championed over the almost nine years of his pontificate. Because I, I think we really need to see ourselves as artisans of a culture of encounter in which everyone has a role to play. You know, we just marked the, the passing of Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and I had the great honor of spending some time with him when I was in college. And when, when we were in conversation together, he was talking about the work of justice as an orchestra. And he said, you know, everyone has an instrument to play. And I pushed back a little bit because I have the rhythm of a corpse. I mean, I just don't have any musical talent whatsoever. And uh, he said, well, I mean, he was adamant about this. He said, even if you can only play the triangle, then play the hell out of the triangle for justice. And, and that's always stuck with me because I think there are a lot of people who just want to excuse themselves from the social or political or economic problems we're facing or say, I've got enough on my plate. You know, it, and that way it really goes back to the priest and the Levite and the story of the Samaritan and that globalization of indifference. To, you know, when people say, that's not my problem or what can I do? And, and Jesus says, you know, in that story that we have to go and do likewise as the Samaritan, which isn't to go and do exactly the same, but to think analogically about what I can do where I am according to my means and limitations, you know, no more and no less. And I think that's the invitation that, you know, for all of us that, you know, if we throw up our hands uh, in despair at the lack of solidarity uh, in our society or the, the fraying social fabric in our communities, that we've got to look ourselves in the mirror and think about, like, what, what am I actually making time for? And people will say, well, I, I don't really know how to make time for anything more. But I think, again, that, that that's why this is a spiritual problem. You know, when you read great spiritual authors like Richard Rohr or even Greg Boyle's new book, The Whole Language, they point out that the spiritual life is really about trying to keep us rooted and feel connected in the tenderness of God, you know, to be tapped into the presence and power of the divine that's always and everywhere present. And in order to have that consciousness, there are things we have to evict out of our life because they're distracting us. I, I don't know if you ever read the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, but I, I think that that actually started as a serial um, column in the newspaper during World War II, when C.S. Lewis was lamenting the way in which so many people were indifferent to what the Nazis were doing in Germany and the way that the Third Reich was encroaching on people's rights and spreading evil. And most Britons were just kind of going on with their lives, you know, saying, thank God we don't live in Germany or Poland. And, and in that book, C.S. Lewis takes the position of a senior demon training a junior demon on how to turn people away from God. And it's fascinating the way that C.S. Lewis is arguing that the devil can tempt us by playing on our insecurities, but more than anything, just distracting us from what really matters. 
And I worry as a moral theologian, just the ways in which our, our phones and our screens more generally do distract us. I mean, even before the pandemic, there were studies that were showing that parents were spending more time watching Netflix than they were interacting with their children. And I understand people are tired and they're burned out and it, you know, the state of the world can be overwhelming, but I think we've really lost a discipline you know, to figure out like, this is my time for self-care and not just to doom scroll forever or binge, you know, hours of Netflix or to just keep playing videos on YouTube on a loop or just, you know, watch TikTok for endless amounts of time. I think we have to see this, this lack of solidarity as a spiritual problem, as an indictment of a lot of apathy and ignorance on our part. And to think about how do we make time to cultivate a deeper relationship with a God who is love, a God who uh, is pained by this social fragility and fracture, and a, a God who wants us to be compassion and agape in the world in the most inclusive way we could imagine, you know, beyond any kind of us and them. And, and that's why I appreciate what Pope Francis has been really trying to emphasize more recently, this call to build an ever wider we, you know, so that we explode, you know, take dynamite to these categories of us and them and try to see ourselves, you know, especially in his most recent encyclical Fratelli Tutti, to see ourselves as part of one single human family, you know, which is what the great saints have always been telling us. You know, I always think of that line from Mother Teresa, if we have no peace, it is because we have forgotten that we belong to each other. You know, that's what St. Francis of Assisi was trying to say 800 years ago. It's, it's what Dorothy Day was trying to help us see a hundred years ago. And so we, we have these prophetic voices calling us to practice an ever more inclusive love. But if it just seems like one more obligation, one more thing to add to our schedule, it'll never get integrated into our lives. And so I think the invitation for us now is to, to look at our lives honestly, you know, with clear eyed vision and to think about what, what do we have to evict, you know, an apartment bursting at its limits and to say, okay, um, what, what, what are the rooms that need to be cleaned out so that I can make more time to be in tune with a God who's pure agape, who loves me and everyone else unconditionally, and expects me to be that instrument of agapic love and inclusive solidarity in my community. Because I think if, if we don't make time to be in touch with a God who loves us gratuitously, it just seems so overwhelming. I, I think that was one of the great gifts uh, that I learned in, in being a student of Gustavo Gutierrez. You know, in reading his book, We Drink From Our Own Wells. You know, here's a theologian writing from the slums of Lima, Peru, staring at face, you know, staring in the face of death everywhere he looks because of illnesses and lack of clean water, lack of access to health care or housing or education. And for him, the, the first word is always about the gratuitousness of God's love. And that being in touch with the abundance of God's love is what fills him and others, not only with joy, but with a, a real genuine spirit of generosity. I think when, you know, to kind of bring our conversation back to the beginning about the problems of despair, I, I think, you know, we can go back to what St. Ignatius of Loyola taught us so long ago, that the root of all sin is ingratitude. You know, that we, we don't take time to see the goodness in and around us. We don't practice that art of contemplation to take a long, loving look at the real, to see the blessings, you know, that people are in our lives, even the people that we might disagree with or don't particularly like, but because they exist, they are sacraments of the divine in our midst and they make the world a better place because of the kind of world that they're trying to build, even if we might not build it exactly the same way. And that, that gratitude can move us toward a generosity that is attentive and responsive to the needs of, of people in, in our schools and places of work and neighborhoods uh, and, and churches, you know, for that matter. But I, I think, you know, we, we've got to go at this through the, you know, the route of gratitude and generosity so that this doesn't just seem like another obligation that people are expecting us to live up to and that we will inevitably fall short and another reason then to not feel very good about ourselves. Given the fact that non-affiliation with religions is rising, uh, does that make the prospect of building solidarity more difficult? I think without a doubt. You know, I, I think, you know, if you look at society, you can, you know, consider it on scales of 
you know, ranging from the individual to the interpersonal to the inst institutional. And when people disaffiliate, we not only lose that, that tie to the macro level and the, the institution affiliation that can help us see like, okay, we might have different politics or we might shop at different stores or we might you know, not share our, our racial or ethnic identity. But because of this institutional affiliation, I, I can feel some kind of uh, affinity or, or respect for you. That I, I think it's only compounding kind of the, you know, what Charles Taylor describes as like this atomizing of society where it just becomes more individualistic. And we're losing kind of those those middle level, level connections, you know, like going back to what, you know, Putnam's talking about with bowling alone, you know, just those informal opportunities to gather, whether it's, you know, no one's bowling now, but, you know, even just with people deciding like, I'm not, I'm not going to attend church. So then I'm, it's not just that I'm not showing up for church on Sunday, but then it's fewer people to do the work of Bible study or setting up the church for, you know, a, a certain liturgical season or helping out at the local soup kitchen or collecting gifts for angel tree, right? Like it's just falling on fewer and fewer individuals and you're, you're losing those opportunities to really interact with and forge meaningful relationships with people that, that come with membership in those organizations. And I think for me, I mean, that was, I think the most important insight that I took away in doing the research for my book is that because we live in an individualistic society, we, we always think about the moral life in terms of individual accountability or individual moral formation, you know, like these are the virtues that I need to habituate so that I develop the kind of character that is good and loving and pursues justice. But psychologists and sociologists tell us that actually moral formation happens mostly through relationships and shared practices. That it, it's not about individuals reading a book or being moved by a priest's homily uh, and then you know going on to change their lives. Uh, you know, when Aristotle said, we are what we repeatedly do, he got it partly right. Uh, it, it would be even more accurate to say, we are what we repeatedly do together. So if we don't have these shared rituals or shared practices, to kind of actually put our values into practice together, then I, I worry that you know we, we don't have uh, a really key source for moral formation as as social formation. You know to help us to see that we meet the needs of the stranger, the widow, or, or the orphan because this is who we are. This is what we believe. This is what we value. And instead, we treat almost everything, you know, like a Yelp review. Uh, where, you know, if it's a rewarding experience, then we'll make time for it. And if it's not, then we just cut it out of our lives. And, and two, I, you know, I think just with our phones and everything that we have at our fingertips, we just expect everything to happen on demand, you know, and, and, and we're training ourselves for instant gratification. And, and moral formation doesn't happen that way, right? Like it, it, it takes time and to learn from struggle and to learn from the wisdom collected from other people, whether they're older or they just have different life experiences than us. So when we have these rising rates of disaffiliation, we lose not only those opportunities to interact with people who you know, might have different political values or you know, come from different walks of life, but we also lose that, a sense of intergenerational solidarity where our children don't have the opportunity to learn from the seniors in our community or, or you know, the veterans of any institution. And I worry about that, that lack of intergenerational solidarity because we, we are kind of isolating and you have younger families who are just circling the wagons and focusing on them. And I get it, you know, with children ranging from ages three to 12, I feel like I've got a lot on my plate. Um, but also, right, like I'm not the first person in history to try to raise a 12-year-old, an eight-year-old, and a three-year-old, right? And there's a lot that I could learn from by being in conversation with those you know, elderly folks at my parish who, you know, are grandparents and have a wisdom that I can't even fathom at my age. And so I, I think that we have to think about what, what are the ways in which we are forming people today and how do we resist that impulse to instant gratification or getting everything on demand or the consumer mindset that kind of well, it's very utilitarian. You know, I will only make time for things that benefit me or that entertain me or that make my life easier. And then it makes it easier to cut out the things that just seem like a struggle or inconvenient or uncomfortable. And I'm, I'm certainly seeing this in the classroom where it's, it's, it's harder and harder to get my students to disagree with each other in the classroom. And it, I think it's, it's a direct correlation 
to the way in which, you know, if you don't like the way people are interacting on social media, you just block them. You know, on Twitter, you just avoid them completely. Or, you know, you stay in your echo chamber on Facebook where, you know, you could solve every problem in the world if just everyone thought the way you did. Um, and so we, we've got to find ways to go back to this culture of encounter and, and, you know, better understand what it's like to be someone other than me and to see that, you know, m- multiple things can be true at once and we don't have to feel so threatened or afraid of disagreement. Mm-hmm. What about on the issue that seems to divide Americans maybe more than any other abortion? Um, we know about the di- bitter divisions there. Can encounter open the door to trying to find common ground, trying to treat each other like human beings rather than sort of enemies, can encounter change the status quo on abortion? I think without a doubt, you know, I, I would, I, I don't have a big paycheck, but I would bet my paycheck that encounter could change uh, the way that we approach that topic. Because I think it is very easy for people to just say, this is my position, you know, change my mind kind of thing, rather than to hear the the narratives of the people who've been impacted by those decisions to really try to take seriously, you know, how do we bring a sense of mercy, solidarity, and hope to really difficult decisions, right? We, we know that in this country, half of all pregnancies are unplanned or unwanted. So there are a lot of people who, you know, are, are facing moral dilemmas around unwanted and unwanted, uh, unplanned pregnancies and who don't really feel well supported or don't know where to look for any kind of moral guidance who are feeling pretty stuck and afraid. And you know, to hear the stories that people have about what it was like for them to try to make a decision about what was best for them and what resources they had, whether it was through their families or friend groups, you know, the kind of social welfare programs that we have and the need to support people through affordable childcare, paid family leave, so that you know, these, these are decisions that don't just come down to finances. I think is crucial. And I think there's way more common ground, actually, on abortion than is often reported by the media. A supermajority of Americans want limitations on abortion after the 20th week of a pregnancy. And so to to begin with what we share in common, I think is really important so that it doesn't feel so bitterly divided or that it's it can be simplified into these, again, these binaries of pro-choice or pro-life. Uh, and to think instead of how do we support families in crisis or women in crisis, how, how do we make sure that we're providing for the children uh, whose parents elected to carry them to term and, and try to provide for them postpartum, which I, you know, I think is something that we have to do a lot more work on politically, economically, and socially. And as someone who identifies uh, as pro-life, you know, how, how do we create a culture that, that does really value the life of the unborn and the life of the mother? You know, because we do have two lives at stake here, and the autonomy of the mother is important, and the dignity of unborn life is also really important. And so to, to think about how can we learn from the narratives of those mothers who are wrestling with what is the best way for me to take care of this unborn child and uh, what, what are the things that I need and, and how can we, again, going through the, the various scales of this issue, respond on the individual level, on the interpersonal level, and, and really importantly, on the institutional levels thinking about what what has to change so that people can be in a position to really care for and create a culture that promotes the dignity of human life at every stage and is especially attentive and responsive to the needs of the most vulnerable among us. Our last segment is On the Ground and On the Hill. Last month was the March for Life. How was this year's march? Was it any different than it's been in past years? Well, the March for Life this year, I think there's a lot of optimism about the Dobbs case. So people were very excited to be there and and be together and marching. Um, you know, and in, I think for, for Democrats for Life, we had a great crowd with um, our big banner, Pro-Life for the Whole Life. And we did receive a lot of attention because um, of our breakfast was supposed to be at Busboys and Poets, and they, they canceled us 10 days before the event because uh, of our pro-life stance. And um, I guess Planned Parenthood was unhappy 
with us using the same venue as they did. And uh, so they, we had to find another venue, but there was still a lot of, a lot of um, you know, just optimism, I think, over the potential to have, to have Roe overturned. Uh, and it's always great to, to get together with my pro-life Democrat friends and, uh, you know, and have great conversations. So it, it was a very good event. White supremacist groups also showed up at the march, and I think one white supremacist actually harassed some black whole-life activists. Jeannie Mancini released a statement condemning these racist groups. Can you describe what you witnessed and what you think is the best way when groups like this show up at the march or any pro-life event? Yeah, I was um, actually very encouraged the way the police handled the white supremacists because they were definitely they were behind the police line with the abortion rights protesters. So they were not there to support our mission um, to protect life. Obviously, they only want to protect white life. So. Um, you know, they don't have a lot in common with the people who were marching there. Uh, but we were with our friends, um, uh, pro-life, pro-black, and new wave feminists, um, you know, get ready to line up. And one of the white supremacists, I think, got loose and uh, walked by our group. And um, basically, he said, there's a civil war coming and you are all going to die, which was, we all looked at each other just confused and then he just kept walking away it's like what what is you know, it was just a very confusing moment you know but he, there was a newspaper report that came out that said that white supremacists are taking over the march which was just really lazy reporting and i did message her and said you know i was there this is what happened the white supremacists were not part of the march they were actually behind the police line and and uh you know so and the the people who march, there's a very diverse crowd of uh, people out there marching for life. Yeah, I do think it offers an excellent opportunity to show that universal commitment to human dignity. Perhaps in the future, if we know these groups are coming, we can call them out by name, say mm -hmm. you're not welcome here, we don't want you here. This is antithetical to every everything we believe. Right. I, you know, I don't think anybody who was marching with us wanted these white supremacists there, which they were not, uh, again, they were behind the police line. We would consider them protesters, not part of the march. They were with the uh, abortion rights people on the other side of the line. Thank you, everyone, for listening to our latest show. Whole Life Rising is brought to you by Democrats for Life of America and Millennial. We want to thank Democrats for Life for taking the lead in fundraising for the show. If you'd like to support the show, please visit the Democrats for Life homepage or our show notes. And please subscribe to the podcast and give it a good review if you'd like to hear more. Until next time, thank you.